Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Don't worry, listeners, things will look very different by Easter. I said different, not better. I'm Ros Taylor, editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello, hello. You tweeted this morning that you woke up with extra fire in your belly after watching Boris Johnson's scruffy non-contrition last night. As he announced more than 100,000 Britons had died of COVID, that's one in every 660 of us. Do you feel energised? Is that the only thing we can take from this ghastly experience? Well, it's what I'm taking from it, Roz. I mean, I am incredibly angry today. You know, this is one... 100,000 British people dead, which means many more hundreds of thousands are grieving. Um, You know, all of those people will have had more than one person in their family, I'm sure. Uh, And more will be suffering other effects of the disease, whether, you know, directly with long COVID or indirectly through delayed medical procedures or declining mental health, you name it. And news out yesterday as well that we have the worst recession among the G7. And these two points are related because this government's strategy was to have us try to live with the virus because they they spun us all those falsehoods that you had to choose between saving lives or saving the economy. And it's just not bloody true. All of those countries that prioritise saving lives rather than living with the virus, which is what our government prioritised, are now back and open for business and having a a much more normal time. And none of it had to be like this. They ignored advice. They thought a virus gave a shit about British exceptionalism, which, of course, it, along with the rest of the world, does not. And in the first wave, it took just 251 days for us to reach 50,000 deaths. And in the second, just 79 days. That means that the government got worse at handling the virus, not better. So, yes, I'm beyond livid. I spoke to Rachel Clark, who's a hospice doctor normally this week for the Bunker Daily. And uh, I asked her how, whether she thought back in March, back in last April, whether we would be back here again and even worse. And she said that she could not have imagined, she could not never have imagined that we were back in the situation that we were before um, after having experienced that. Alex Andrio is a Best for Britain tweeter, Byline Times writer, singer, bon vivant and gourmand. Hello, Alex. Hello, Roz. Tell us about the Environment Bill, which, you know, to my mind should be quite a big deal, but it's being delayed by another six months by the Johnson government. Um, yeah. we, know, we know the Jet Skis Licensing Bill, which is a real thing. as a bigger claim on parliamentary time this year. But seriously, why, why the delay? To be fair, the jet ski um, licensing bill may be a, quite a quick one to get through. Uh, um, this isn't the first time the uh, environment bill is being delayed. It was first launched in 2018 for something that's uh, being seen as an emergency. It doesn't seem like very urgent action to me. The targets in the bill were not binding anywhere until 2027. So people were complaining that it was quite unambitious anyway. Johnson called it the huge star of their legislative program when it was reintroduced 
for uh, passage through the through parliament and now it's off again and we're being promised it will be reintroduced in the next session in the spring I mean, it's embarrassing, is what it is. We have COP26 coming up, uh, which we're hosting. The UK is hosting COP26 in Glasgow this autumn. And if we get there and we don't even have uh, enacted into legislation our, you know, lofty words, it will be just hugely embarrassing, but completely par for the course for this government. Yasmin Serhan is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. In the last week, Russians have been braving minus 50 degree temperatures to protest against the arrest of Alexei Navalny. How secure is Vladimir Putin right now, do you think? I'd say pretty secure in that I don't necessarily think anyone is suggesting that this marks Putin's imminent decline. Um, but I do think that the protests over the weekend were notable in, in a couple of big ways. I mean, obviously, as you just mentioned, saw, I think, one of the biggest protests that we've seen in the country in recent years, tens of thousands of people braving extremely cold temperatures to go out and demonstrate. But I think the protests were also interesting in that it kind of put the Kremlin on the back foot. Um, this is a government that wouldn't so much as say Navalny's name before. He was kind of like their own personal Voldemort. And now they're being put in a position where they have to flatly deny the corruption allegations that he's made, chief among them that Putin owns a secret, or I should say Putin allegedly owns a secret billion dollar palace on the Black Sea, complete with a wine cellar, a movie theater and an $850 toilet brush. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> things you wish you had in lockdown. Um, does he actually use this toilet brush? Because, you know, you'd presume. Oh gosh, yeah. No, it's too, but, it's too pristine for that. I th yeah. I, I, I wouldn't if I had one, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I think so. So, I mean, obviously Navalny, I, obviously because of, you know, the, the recent attempted assassination of him with Novichok. You know, I think his stature has certainly risen um, in, in Russia and around the world. But but I think he's also kind of emerged as something of an opposition figure for Russians to rally behind. And and I think that's for people who are concerned with corruption. But I, I also think it's for Russians who are concerned with kind of, you know, more quotidian issues like standards of living and the economy and the handling of the pandemic. What I thought was really interesting was that, you know, from what I saw from commentators and analysts is that one of the main aims of these protests was to basically get Navalny a smaller sentence. Um, but I'd be interested to see, you know, if these protests continue to next weekend and the weekend after, whether those demands grow with it. I did notice that Russia eased lockdown today slightly. So that may or may not have anything to do with uh, his desire to turn around public opinion. On the show this week, as the EU warns it could restrict exports of the AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines unless the manufacturers fulfil their contracts, and that means to non-EU countries like Britain, are we looking at the first real post-Brexit row between Britain and Brussels, or are partisan voices here just trying to make it look that way? Plus, we want to get loaded and have a good time when the falling R8 and pressures on the NHS allow it, obviously. But will our relationship with alcohol be the same again after the double blow of dry January and shuttered pubs? And in the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, we talk sex, representation, politics and poppers in the new Russell T. Davis AIDS drama, It's a Sin, which evokes gay life in London in the 1980s so powerfully we can almost smell the dry ice. More than 100,000 people in Britain are now dead of a virus that most of them had never heard of a year ago. 
In fact, it was just announced today that another 1,725 people have died. That's the second highest daily total since the start of the pandemic. At least we were one of the first countries to start vaccinating people, an advantage the Brexiters wrongly said was thanks to leaving the EU. Now there are emerging tensions over delays to supplies, with calls for some of the Oxford AstraZeneca jabs to be diverted to the EU from the UK so the bloc gets a fair share. There's clearly a huge amount of frustration in the EU about the relatively slow pace of the rollout there. We've given 10.5 doses per 100 people. The EU has an average of only two. In the Netherlands, there have been riots for the past few nights over lockdown. It's all complicated by the fact that each vaccine is developed, manufactured and distributed in different countries, making it vital that we can share out the supply amicably. Naomi, are you worried about the fallout of this for the EU-British relationship? There's undoubtedly been quite a bit of triumphalism from the UK about our relatively successful rollout, hasn't there? Mm, I mean, I think what what this is, is fallout from an already uh, fragile EU-British relationship. So a little bit of extra context for listeners in case they don't know. Yesterday, a German newspaper, Handelsblatt, which as I understand it is a bit like their version of the FT, ran a story saying that German officials believe the AstraZeneca vaccine is only 8% effective in the over 65s. Uh, immediately the British and German governments, as well as AstraZeneca themselves, of course, come out and strongly refute this. Um, And the mix-up seems to have been that the 8% refers to the number of people in the trials who were over 65, not the effectiveness rate uh, of the vaccine on the over 65s. And this happened against the backdrop of supply issues that you've mentioned, Rose, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and its ability to deliver the amounts that the EU thought it had ordered from AstraZeneca. And of course, the backdrop of the EU asking Pfizer and others to notify them before vaccines are exported out of the EU to third countries. And of course, Brexiters are having an absolute field day with this. They're saying that Germany is comparable to Russia in terms of fake news and spreading disinformation. And all of this is what happens in a low trust environment when you behave in a protectionist way towards your trading partners. You know, and, and this is Britain's fault because we have threatened to break international law. We have shown scant regard for international protocols. We have behaved poorly towards EU nationals living in the UK. And so we've engineered a low trust environment between us and the EU, meaning that you're, you know, anyone who's worked in a in an office that has a really low trust environment or, you know, a, any kind of job, you know, you're always really quick to assume malice. You're constantly fault finding and others are constantly fault finding you and, you know, viewing any accident as some, some kind of deliberate and personal attack. And it, it's kind of hard to to think that we're in anything other than entering a phase with the EU where each party just seems determined to use each other's failure as evidence of their own success. But the relative success of the rollout so far, does it explain why Johnson's ratings are still relatively healthy, despite the large number of deaths? Because Tom McTague in The Atlantic this week wrote a piece in which he said that this was basically Johnson's last shot at redemption, his chance to redefine the narrative of the pandemic and cast himself as the winner. Is he, to a certain extent, succeeding in doing that, despite everything? Well, look, I mean, he's sort of hovering around the same place in the polls that he has been for for a long time. I haven't seen a post-100,000 death 
announcement poll. But I do agree with McTague that the, the, the common strategy from number 10 at the moment surely is, you know, that, oh, the EU are losers on the vaccine race. Thank God we're out. And now they're trying to cheat by restricting UK supply because that, that really is all that our government have got now. You know, when, when Johnson says he did all he could and that he takes full responsibility, it's lies. He's a lying liar who lies. He did far less than he could have and should have. And when the scientists told us at the start of the pandemic that 20,000 deaths would be a, quote, good result, uh, and we have now roared past five times that, it should be a resigning matter. You know, he's laced the pockets of his friends with billions of pounds worth of contracts. He's failed to deliver testing and tracing properly. He's failed to deliver on schools. He's failed to deliver on support for excluded groups, failed to protect our economy. And the day of reckoning with a public inquiry will come. Um, It should have already come. Um, I'm I'm appalled that he isn't faring worse. But yes, I think you're right, Roz. Their only hope now is to cling on to this success that they are so far having in terms of vaccine rollout. Hope that supply issues don't get in the way of achieving that, because frankly, on any other measure, we are abhorrently bad. Yasmin, how is the rollout going in the US right now? Um, it's slowly, I, I think. The uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, puts the number of people vaccinated um, with at least one dose, I think, at, a, at around 20 million or nearly there. And um, just 3.4 million have received both doses. So it, it's not great, but um, but things are looking up. Um, according to my colleagues at the COVID tracking project, um, hospitalizations are falling across the country now. So I think the momentum is headed in the right direction. But um, obviously, you know, there, there are some key what ifs, um, the new variants, both the, the British variety and the Brazilian ones, those have both been identified in the US, it's still not clear um, what impact that will have. I, I've seen though through through some friends back home that, that there are kind of new heightened health regula- um, recommendations coming out. And one of them is that people should double up on masking. So basically wearing a cloth mask over a surgical one. Um, I actually first noticed this and, and some of some of our listeners might have as well. Um, at the Biden inauguration, there were a number of lawmakers. I think Pete Buttigieg was among them who were who were seen wearing double masks. So um, so clearly there's a, I think there's a concerted effort to try to speed things up and, and things are looking slightly better for now. Um, there's also, I think, an intention to try to take this a bit more seriously under the new administration. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed, I guess. Alex, do you foresee problems if the EU can't speed things up? What is the mood in Greece, for example? I mean, Greece was always going to use winter as a sort of downtime because its economy is so highly seasonal. There was quite a general understanding from everyone I'd spoken to that we were going to lock down pretty much in winter to make sure we drove numbers again as low as possible in order to be able to um, open up for the summer season, essentially. Uh, The vaccination program started in mid-December. Big Pharma is a big bogeyman in Greece, you have to understand, as I think in many, many uh, southern European countries. So uh, the delay, as far as I've seen from the newspapers that I read, from right wing to left wing, from pro-European to sceptic, the delay at the moment is being attributed exclusively to AstraZeneca and Pfizer failing to deliver the doses they had promised. 
Now, that's not to say that the EU is off the hook. I think national governments will only show very limited patience for the issue to be sorted at EU level and will peel off and start competing with each other and talking directly to the manufacturers if the EU fails to resolve this quickly. So I think the stakes are very high. The good news is that most of, uh, more of us seem to be enthusiastic about getting the jab. There was a Forbes survey out this week that... Uh, point is quite a big lift in some countries in the willingness of people to get the vaccine, even in France. What do you think of the European Commission's uh, I Did It campaign? This shows lots of um, you know, quite prominent scientists often rolling up their sleeves and explaining why they're getting the jab. Yeah. I mean, I like that it features scientists. I think that's the right way to go. It's a little bit corny, but then again, such things always are, especially when they're uh, addressed to a very culturally diverse audience you know at least they have a campaign uh, i have i haven't seen one here I, I think the willingness to have the vaccine is also a sign of how desperate things are and and so i would read partly into those figures that show a very high willingness in the uk to be vaccinated you have to factor in you know, how bad things are right now. The more people are scared about the situation, the more uh, uh, ready they will be to overcome their fear of uh, getting vaccinated. Yeah, the strategy here seems to have centred on uh, getting celebrities to be photographed Mm. being vaccinated, doesn't it? Which might be a reflection of the cultural landscape here. Maybe people trust celebrities more than they trust scientists after, you know, five years of Brexit campaigning. (laughs) Naomi, Britain launched its own set of ads uh, urging us to look COVID patients in the eyes and tell them that we're not social distancing, doing unnecessary shopping and so on. It's quite a powerful campaign, but is it is it a justifiable shock strategy, this, or is it yet another effect, effort to deflect blame onto the public, essentially? Well, I think it could be both, Ros. Um, you know, they obviously want uh, us all to blame each other rather than them or, or blame anyone rather than them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're fully aware of how, uh, you know, transmissible this new variant is and how much more deadly it seems to be. So, you know, they, they, they know that they've got to keep the compliance up with uh, social distancing. But the problem is that, you know, we've obviously, Alex, and, and you just touched on this, um, the problem is about the messenger and, and who is the best place messenger to get people to feel guilty about it and to comply. And the problem is our government has no credibility to be delivering this kind of message because of the way for way they've managed the pandemic, um, the amateurism, the short termism, the Barnard Castleism, for God's sake. Uh, this is this is a government that is dismissed following the examples of New, New Zealand and the Asian countries and, you know, where, where wearing masks were you know, much more socially acceptable and readily adopted because of their experiences with SARS. We ignored the fact that they'd had those other experiences, had the exceptionalism, and now we're having to spend money on ad campaigns to get people to comply because for many, many months, basically our our leaders told us we didn't really need to and certainly that the rules didn't apply to them. Can I add something, actually, because listening to the conversation, it also occurs to me that the relative success, and I hope you can hear that I'm italicizing mm-hmm. the word, 
of the vaccine rollout is also the result of two giant risks that the government has taken, one to do with spacing out the doses and the other to do with approving the vaccines really very, very quickly, trusting the data basically the pharma companies had given them, neither of which has yet completely panned out. So let's uh, uh, put a little bit of a break on showering the government with praise on its vaccine rollout quite yet. Yasmin, some of my colleagues at the LSE have come out very strongly against the idea of vaccine passports, basically where you have to prove that you've had the vaccine before you can travel abroad, whether for holiday or anything else. Um, But the Saga Holiday Company has already said they'll demand proof of a jab. Will individual states be able to hold out against people's desire to fly off on holiday, do you think, Uh, and countries' desperation for tourist revenues? Yeah, I think it'll be difficult. I mean, I think you can understand why countries that, you know, rely quite a lot on tourism and also obviously companies who do as well um, will be quite keen to look for any sort of way that gets them back um, into doing business again. But but to, to the point of that your LSE colleagues have raised, I think this is understandably a pretty divisive issue. I mean, you know, say you're someone who doesn't want the vaccine, then you might feel like you're being unfairly persecuted. But even if we want to just put the, the anti-vaxxers aside for a second, you know, say generationally, younger people who haven't had the jab might resent grandma for going on holiday before them. I mean, one would hope that's not the case, but, you know, you could certainly see an instance where younger people um, feel like they've been unfairly disadvantaged uh, relative to older people who've been prioritized. Um, and, and you also have to remember, too, that, you know, vaccine distribution isn't happening evenly. I, I believe only one of the world's 29 poorest countries, it's Guinea, has actually started vaccinating people. So wealthier countries have completely dominated the the number of available doses so far, um, some being able, having enough doses to inoculate their population several times over. So if we were to create vaccine passports, we would also be creating a world in which travel would effectively be reserved for people from the wealthiest countries. That said, though, I, I do have an Israeli family friend who, who was recently vaccinated, and he was given a green passport um, via the country's Ministry of Health, which I think um, affords him freedoms like traveling abroad without having to isolate and going to the movies and normal things like that. Um, so I, you know, I can understand the appeal for that sort of thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some countries uh, trying to, to implement that sort of thing. But I could think on an international level, it could create a lot of problems. And, and on the flip side, we might see countries which are so desperate for tourism that they end up offering a sort of no, nothing required, no holds barred type destination, even at the cost of um, human life, because you know, tourism is so important to their economy. So what are the prospects, do you think, for us having the remotest chance of going to spend the summer on Mykonos at the moment, Alex? Well, look, I mean, things may have eased off by the summer. If there's one thing that can be said with absolute confidence about this government is that it it changes its mind easily and, and often. But again, I find it interesting how British people have the propensity to think of tourism as something that is a consumable to them without thinking at all about inward tourism, which is a huge industry for this country uh, on which thousands of businesses depend. Um, 
and which will be hit by a, cor- a, a sort of in, inbound quarantine harder than anything else. So even after we begin to be able to open, um, you know, restaurants, cafes, bars, clubs, if you're talking about restaurants, cafes, bars, clubs that are in tourist spots, unless you open the borders for inbound tourism, you will never see the demand, the volume that these places require, which tend to also be very high rent, that they need to break even and make a profit. And, and you know, this constant thinking of tourism as something that I do when I fly off for two weeks in the summer, we need to rebalance the conversation and look at tourism as something that millions of people do when they come here to be tourists. Yes, this week the New York Times wrote about why minority groups are sometimes reluctant to get the jab, which is a problem over here in the UK as well. What's the new US government doing to reassure them? Um, yeah, actually, that the the New York Times piece was actually focusing on Britain. Um, though I, I would ima- I, I would hope at least that that a similar initiative would would be taking place in the U.S. as well. But yeah, basically, I, I mean, wh- what we know from the pandemic, of course, in our experience, is that this is a virus that disproportionately, in terms of both infection rates and death, affects minority groups. Um, but polling has also shown that minority groups are among those with the highest levels of hesitancy um, when it comes to getting a vaccine. Um, so it looks like the, the government is is trying to invest more and basically trying to assuage those concerns um, and fact-checking a lot of the misinformation that's out there. Uh, I know one thing that, that I've heard is, is that, you know, kind of concerns over the fact that, you know, for Muslim communities, that there are... Um, bits of of pork um in in the vaccine obviously that's been um that's been debunked so yeah i mean i think it's a it's a great it's a great initiative and and one that hopefully governments around the world will be doing because you know uh, just as important in a vaccine rollout to you know say building the centers and getting people in is making sure that people feel safe and explaining why they believe it to be safe um why they've gone about the approval process the way that they have done as alex just mentioned um, I think these are all really important things in, in making people feel more sure about getting it. Do we think it's okay for companies to make vaccination obligatory? I mean, I, I personally don't have a problem with this. And I think the boss of Pimlico Plumbers, for example, has said he won't let anyone come and fix your boiler unless they've no. had the jab. But do you think there are any problems with that potentially? I think was that that is an enormously big question um, that probably deserves a kind of moral maze style podcast all to itself. But on balance, (laughs) um, as a liberal, I'd say that the harm principle comes into play and and that it's okay. And other societies have considered it much more than than we have in Britain. And, you know, in some countries, children aren't allowed to attend, um, you know, public as in, you know, government state schools, uh, if they've not had the MMR, for instance. However, I think the danger here is that it could be a bit of a distraction from the other measures. So what we still don't really know, but there is some evidence to suggest, is whether once you've had the vaccine, you can still transmit it to other people, whether you contract it, but it just doesn't make you ill because you've had the vaccine, but you can actually still pass it on to somebody else. And so I would be much more comfortable with somebody coming to fit my boiler if they were wearing a mask uh, and other PPE um, than I would necessarily them flashing me a, a Pfizer card to show me that they'd had their vaccine.
If you're listening to this on Friday, there's only a couple of days left of dry January. I gave up on the idea of this when schools closed again, but having tried a pricey botanical gin substitute this week, I have to admire the chutzpah of British drinks manufacturers. There's no doubt that even those of us who barely had time to go into a hostelry over the past decade are now missing the pub. And when I pass one now, it feels a bit like a phone box, a legacy from you know another world. <laughs> Before the pandemic, we were enthusiastic drinkers with the English and Scottish clogging up A&E at twice the global average rate with their alcohol-related problems. But what are we drinking now behind closed doors? And are all those takeout delivery drivers really carrying pizza boxes? (laughs) Naomi, you've done dry January. How is it? How was it? Um, I only did it inadvertently, by the way. So I don't know how this route, I, I need to scotch. How can you do it inadvertently? So I didn't sort of say, right, I'm going to have an entire month off booze or anything like that. I, I am not an advocate of dry January. I, you know, fine if people want to do it, but I, it, not for me and I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but my, my partner has long COVID um, and can't drink at the moment. And I don't like drinking on my own. So uh, I had been drinking when we were still allowed to go out and meet other people. And for me, it's it's a very social thing. I'm, I'm not very likely to sit and drink on my own. That said, I did have a whiskey the other night because I'd had an incredibly stressful day, but just the one. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there are many less dangerous substances than alcohol. Um, including most illegal drugs that probably should be legalised and regulated. Um, but I've not touched any of those either during lockdown. Have you found any acceptable substitutes for booze? Can you give us any tips? Um, bubble baths, lots of other you know, <laughs> nice, enjoyable, relaxing activities. Oh, I don't uh, think I'd enjoy drinking a whole bubble bath. <laughs> no, Alex will tell me off because of the water consumption. <laughs> where they have a water shortage, unlike here, uh, you don't take baths. I suppose if you bathed in Prosecco, that would be something quite good, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't afford champagne, but maybe on a really, really, really good day, you could almost afford Prosecco. It's all English sparkling wine now, dear. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Yasmin, have you done dry January? Is it it a thing in America? Um, I I hadn't heard of it before I moved here, so I'm going to go with no, but I could be wrong. Um, (laughs) As for whether I've done it, God, no. Um, it, it not, you know, it, I say that it, despite the fact that I don't actually really recall having that much to drink this month. I, I would probably never participate in dry January just because it's my birthday month and I just feel like that's mean. So, um, yeah, no, I've, I've never had the pleasure. Belated happy birthday or happy birthday imminently. Oh, thank, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I had a nice, uh, nice cheeky can of beer to celebrate. So it was good. How did you find Britain's drinking culture when you moved here? So contrary to most kind of American expat narratives that you've probably heard, I also, I lived in DC just for context. And for, for anyone who's been to DC, it's a very happy hour friendly, boozy brunch type of town. So, um, I actually found that when I moved here that I was drinking less. Um, and I'm not sure what that says about me. Um, to be honest, I think it's because it got cold really quickly and I didn't really have the desire, like the, like the, uh, the very brave Brits I knew to kind of be out in the pub in nothing but a puffer jacket <laughs> outside. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know it's, it's definitely more of an extreme thing here, but, um, but yeah, I really didn't, maybe this just says something about my assimilation to the UK. It's just, I'm not doing it right. 
When we talk about Britain's boozy culture, that's obviously a massive generalisation. Many Muslims don't drink. In Wales and Scotland, there have been powerful temperance communities that are sometimes still quite active. Younger people also drink less than their parents did, even during the pandemic, apparently. Alex, it's very hard to know how the pandemic has changed people's private behaviour. But reports from universities suggest that some students coped with the horror show of last term by taking drugs in quantity. (laughs) I mean, students have always taken drugs, but are we seeing changes in the way they do that? I think we are seeing all sorts of changes, but I don't think they will become clear and ingrained until this thing is over. Um, I mean, to me, dry January always felt quite weird because it indicated 11 pretty wet months. And from what I've observed, that's not inaccurate. Um, I often go a month without drinking any alcohol, without having to name it. So there may be a problem within the concept of dry January. Drugs, and I include alcohol, are habit-forming. And if the lockdown has resulted in the formation of different habits and possibly worse habits, maybe starting to drink earlier because you don't have a commute or maybe drinking or taking drugs alone because you're stuck at home and bored. So rather than than taking these things in order to boost your, your spirit, to take them to sort of numb the dullness. I think this could turn out to be a big, big problem, actually, down the line. Alex, I've heard lots of friends say, oh, no, I'm, I have to have a drink because I have to demarcate night from day now in a way I didn't have to when I, as you said, had a commute in a totally different environment in the evening to, to the daytime. Yeah, it's so how interesting. I think pe- people use it as punctuation. Yasmin, De Montfort University found the County Lines Network, which is essentially how drugs are supplied to different parts of the country by networks of often young, very young people, that stayed intact during the first lockdown. It just adapted to the new circumstances. What does that tell us about attempts to crack down on drug use, that we can't even restrict it when we've been ordered to stay at home? Yeah, it's it's pretty, I think, pretty damning uh, assessment of, of kind of how you approach it. I mean, I, I think... We obviously should come to expect that as, you know, with all things in this pandemic, everything adapts, everything finds a new way of sort of, uh, of, of kind of cracking on with, um, the way, as I understand it, at least, and admittedly, I wasn't totally familiar with kind of county lines, um, just uh, in, in terms of that, that, that was how, um, you know, drugs were spread across the country. But, you know, especially the fact that it's, it's young, vulnerable people who are often exploited in this, the, the fact that, you know, that, probably because of the pandemic, they have less access to resources or social care because of all this. So I, th- I think it's a huge problem. Um, and it's, yeah, it's pretty sad to, to think that that could still be a thing that's happening, even as we're being told to stay home. Naomi, it looks as though we'll have another gradual easing of lockdown. Maybe in April, we'll be allowed to gather in small groups outside again, rule of six, all that kind of thing. And obviously, when people do that, they're going to take the opportunity to drink together and it'll be a bit warmer again. So my happiest memories of last summer were doing exactly that. (laughs) Are pubs with their expensive drinks going to struggle now, even when they are allowed to reopen and we don't know when that will be? Have we got used to the joys of a bottle of fizz in the park or do you think we'll go back quite quickly to drinking in pubs again? 
look, we, we've we've always enjoyed a party in the park as well as enjoying pub life. Um, so I think there'll always be demand for both, um, and especially for pubs in in bad weather. But as you say, whether enough boozers survive this horrific recession, you know, worst for 300 years, worst in the G7, etc., you know, remains to be seen. And I have to say, it's not looking good for them. And, you know, I know we're going to be talking about It's the Sin later in the show for, for Patreon backers. The number of LGBT venues that have closed just in the last couple of weeks in London has been incredibly shocking. You know, some that have been around for a very, very long time. Yeah, I think I think it's a real worry as to as to how many... Uh, venues that, that sell alcohol will survive this and whether there will be enough for us to go to but yes we will want to yes of course we will now it's time for overrated underrated where we choose the political marmite of the day <laughs> alexandreu what are your choices okay so for overrated i'm going to go for the daily telegraph um i know it's not hugely overrated in our circles but i think it's still overrated in conservative circles i mean it's difficult to imagine that there was a time not very long ago when this newspaper was considered a newspaper of record seeing the craven filth it pumps out now the the daily boris johnson prostate exam that it delivers it <sighs> it, it really is very very difficult to I'm so fathom sorry if anyone was eating while listening to this to fathom what's <laughs> happened to this once great newspaper it used to be the newspaper that i would read if i wanted to get a sort of sane version of what the other side politically were thinking you can now predict pretty much their take on any issue this week has been particularly bad i mean it's been it really has been a a, a, a bin fire underrated i'm going to go for the mirror and that's because i think that pipa crera is possibly the most talented political journalists working in the UK at the moment. I um, did a, a long read for Byline in which I had to watch all the conferences on COVID, all the presses on COVID that had been for a period of three months. And consistently, the question people Crera asked of Boris Johnson or whatever minister was doing it, turned out to be the big issue the month after. She really has an extraordinary radar, and her correspondence from Downing Street, I think, is second to none. It has been an amazing feature in the last 10, 15 years. I think people don't necessarily realise the way that women have risen to the top in political journalism mm. in a way that they were. It was it was virtually impossible to do because of, I don't know, perceptions. And, and if you had a family, it was it was basically impossible to do to do that job. But gradually, about 10, 15 years ago, things started to change. And there are now you know, very senior women like Laura Kunzberg and 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 so on uh, and other and Anushka Asthana who are right at the top of the profession and that never used to be the case. Yeah, I agree. When's Bethrigby allowed back on Sky? Um, I think six months, they said, so that's probably another four 
to go, right. I'm afraid. Um, and Beth Rigby is exceptionally good. I, I think people sort of a rung below uh, Laura Kunzberger. I think Vicky Young is very good, for instance. <laughs> Now it's time for But Your Emails. Each week we ask one of our Patreon backers for a final topic to discuss. And this week, Ben Mao asks, if the UK were to break up or become more federal with an English parliament, if England is carved up into 650 seats under first past the post, what kind of results come out of it? My gut says very regressive and UKIP-y, but you get a lot of seats in populous areas that tend to be more progressive, a bit like the Joe Biden results map. So what does the panel think an English parliament would look like? Naomi, you're pretty much an expert on uh, constituencies in, in England and where they Am I? <laughs> where they lean. What's your what's your feeling? Um, so I think if is doing a lot of very heavy lifting in this question. And so, you know, in the scenario that we lose the United Kingdom and we have a unified Ireland and Scotland goes independent. I think it's worth remembering that we don't have first past the post for Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish or London elections at the moment. So I just don't see that in this scenario, a new English parliament or or English regional parliaments would be fought under first past the post. However, that's not answering questions. So if that if sticks then I think we need to look at what happened in 2019 as the the most recent election that we have to go on. And in English constituencies only, 47% of those voted Conservative and just 34% Labour, giving the Conservatives 345 of 533 seats, which is a 78-seat majority. So he's he's right in his his instincts that um, it it would probably be a, a pretty regressive result under first past the post. Mm. Um, but for all of these reasons, we absolutely need a constitutional convention <laughs> to sort it all out. I mean, of course, it depends on whether the seats are reallocated on in terms of population, because since the last carve-up of constituencies, population has concentrated even more in urban areas. So if there were to be another carve-up, on the basis of population, cities, which on the whole tend to support Labour, would get a lot more MPs. Is this a government that will allow its 80-seat majority to create a situation that will give the opposition the initiative? I think not. Would we see big regional divides, do you think, emerging? I, I think the divide is between city and countryside. Um, and I think you see the same divide, you know, going from elections in three, four countries that I'm relatively familiar with. You see the same divide going on in France. You see the same divide going on in Norway, same divide going on in Greece, same divide going on in the States. There is a big, big difference between how cities vote and how um, outside cities vote. And I think that's the real divide that's been created over the last decade. I noticed this week that the Lib Dems have fallen even further in the polls. And it now you're now getting to a dynamic where the Greens are regularly doing a lot better than the Lib Dems. And I'm wondering whether you could get places like Brighton, Bristol, the Southwest, where they really become almost regional strongholds for the Greens under a situation like that. Yes, but but probably not while first past the post still held. Yes, the Greens are regularly now um, polling just ahead of the Liberal Democrats. I fully anticipate them to 
keep that position and grow it um, ahead of the Lib Dems unless the Lib Dems do something pretty radical. But they're, they're sort of on the 6-7% with the Lib Dems on the 5-6% um, sort of jockeying around similar levels to each other at the moment. And we, we, we just know that, you know, our, our corrupted, bastardised, first-past-the-post system uh, distorts you know outcomes and and votes do not equal seats so um you're right those those are already their their target areas as a as a party um outside of brighton um where they're strongest bristol in particular i'm sort of not surprised every time med davy pops up in prime minister's questions i genuinely have this internal monologue where where i go oh god he's leader of the lib dems now I forget between each time I see him that he exists. It's partly because politics is essentially suspended in its normal form, isn't it? I mean, we don't actually hear that much from Keir Starmer, either. Yes, that, that's true. But, but you know, he's not, he's not the most sparkling personality. Well, Ben, I mean, should this happen, obviously, should this English federal parliament become a reality, then this will be a whole new focus for campaigning for us where we have to make sure it's not first past the post. And, uh, you know, we have to go for STV or, or one of the other systems uh, that I can see. I can see our listeners getting well behind that campaign. And that's the end of the show. Thank you to Alex. Thank you. Yasmin. Thank you. And Naomi. Thanks very much. And thanks to you for listening. We read all of your tweets about how the podcast has helped you during lockdown and we read them all. If you want to help us out further, you can leave us a review on your podcast player of choice. We love reading those as well. The nice ones, anyway. Now, it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and an enormous thank you from me to Jessica Loudon, Padre Gliddy, Ian Smith, Alexandra Canaveses and Ross Gilby. Thanks for your support and hello from me to Alexander Mulhern, Marcus Farnfield, R. Feeks, Jenny Gould and Charlie. And my thanks go to Kirill Acton, Sasha Walker, John Cooper, Andrew Terry and Lewis Smith. And finally, thanks to Owen McCarthy, Max Prangnell, Matthew Enright, Alison Guthrie and Sasha. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Alexandre, Yasmin Saran and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? It's a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive to Patreon backers. This week we're talking about It's a Sin, the new Russell T Davis series about gay London in the 1980s and the AIDS crisis, currently running on Channel 4. It's a meticulous recreation of the era, the stonewashed jeans, the importance of the postbox, the smell of homophobia in the morning. (laughs) And it was sobering to realise, especially now, how little everyone knew about the disease. One of the characters got up in the night to destroy a mug that one of her friends who was HIV positive had drunk from. There was an awful lot of cleaning, which certainly was pretty evocative. Alex, you were in London at the uh, beginning of the 1990s, so just at the end of the era this is portraying. Did you recognise this picture? I recognised some of it um, because before I was in London, 
I was in Greece and, uh, you know, being from Mykonos, which was a very cosmopolitan place um, and a big sort of gay resort, uh, we were hearing rumors of this disease uh, really throughout my teen years. Um, and I remember very, very well that in 1987, a very famous in Greece uh, fashion designer and really one of the most beautiful men you had ever seen died of it. And it was just huge news, devastating for the uh, community in Mykonos, devastating for the gay community. So, yes, I remember the tail end of that very, very well. Davis approaches the story through three families. There's Richie from the Isle of Wight, who wants to be an actor, Roscoe from a Nigerian family in London, and a very shy Colin from Wales. Did that device work for you? Um, it, it worked to a certain extent. I mean, I've only seen a couple, I'm, a, I'm only a couple of episodes in, so I, I don't want to judge the entire story arc. I think Russell T. Davis is very generous at uh, telling this sort of story. I think he's also has a tendency to be quite broad brush. That's not necessarily a, a massive criticism. You know, s- some stories need to be told in primary colours. And so, yes, there's a little bit of uh, of me that balked at the sort of stereotypes that that were dealt with but many other things um, you know rung so incredibly true which don't exist in today's lgbtq plus scene for instance um the idea of mentoring that was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week.